Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. In the book of Genesis, there's a man who occupies many chapters of the narrative whose name was Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and he was especially loved by his father and especially loved by God, so much so and favored by God that God gave him a couple of dreams that indicated that one day when he was older, he would rule or lead his own family, his brothers, but even his own parents as well. And his brothers hated the fact that Joseph was favored by their dad and also that Joseph was favored by God. So one day, they made a decision when they were far from home to fake Joseph's death and sell him into slavery. And because of that, he was carried away to the land of Egypt where he was a servant for a while. A false accusation rose up, and so he was thrown into prison for a number of years. And it was there in prison that two servants of Pharaoh were also thrown into prison and had a couple of divine dreams, dreams that they knew were not just normal run-of-the-mill dreams, but that meant something. And Joseph, with the help and aid of the Holy Spirit, interpreted their dreams and told them to remember him when they were restored. And one of them, the cupbearer, was restored but forgot about Joseph until two years later when Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt, had two dreams that he knew were not normal, but abnormal, different from a normal dream. And he began to wonder what these dreams meant. And the cupbearer heard Pharaoh's dilemma and remembered that he had forgotten Joseph, told Pharaoh all about Joseph. And within a matter of minutes or hours, Joseph was cleaned up, cleaned up given a fresh shave and new clothes and a garment put on his body and a medallion hung from his neck, and he was brought in to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told him his two dreams. In one of the dreams, there were seven healthy cows that were eaten up by seven frail and emaciated cows. In the second dream, there were seven full heads of grain that were consumed by seven blighted heads of grain. And Pharaoh told these dreams to Joseph, and Joseph told him, well, the interpretation does not come from me, but it comes from God, and God has given me the interpretation, and here it is. And he told Pharaoh that in the next seven years, throughout the world, there would be seven years of great prosperity, but that those years would be followed by seven years of worldwide famine. Then after giving the interpretation of the dream, Joseph gave his opinion on what Pharaoh should do with this new information. And he said, Pharaoh, you should, over the next seven years, build barns and storehouses and sock away as much of that grain, as much of that food as you possibly can so that you can prepare your land for the years of famine. And Pharaoh realized that Joseph was right, and he realized what he had in Joseph, so he said, that sounds good to me, and I'm gonna put you in charge of the whole operation. So for 14 years, Joseph oversaw this operation in Egypt. He stored the food for seven years, 
And then in the last seven years, he began to sell the food back to people who were under the famine and then eventually began to trade food for land. And because of that, expanded the borders of Egypt and prepared Egypt for a future golden age. The reason I'm telling you that story about Joseph is because in my mind, this section of scripture, in this section of scripture, the apostle John is behaving like Joseph for the church. He is saying to the church, look, when you came to Christ, you got Jesus. You got the forgiveness of sins. You got a father in heaven. And the Holy Spirit of God came to live inside of you. They were years of abundance. But you have to understand that with the abundance, there will also come times of difficulty. And John wasn't talking about trials, but talking about those who would depart from the church teaching false doctrines. What he wanted to do was prepare the church for the times of famine, prepare the church for the times of difficulty so that we could stand. And so in this passage, John is going to help prepare us, not for the age to come, but the age that we're in right now, today. He's going to show us three things. First, he's going to tell us that we should consider the season that we are living in right now. We'll talk about that. He calls it the last hour. Secondly, he's going to tell us that we need to confess and keep on confessing Jesus Christ as God the Son and the Son of God. And number three, he's going to tell us that we need to continue in the teaching of the Holy Spirit uh, who is taught the church from the very beginning and continues to teach the church today the word of God. So let's look at this first thing. Number one, let's consider the season that we are in. Let's read verse 18 to 20 uh, together. It says in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist or that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, these antichrists, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, verse 20, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Now, after reading those verses, Let's just think for a second about our reaction to the reading. I'm sure that there were many different reactions in the room as I read some of these verses. Some of, some of you, as I read these verses and you saw phrases like, it's the last hour, or you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, or many Antichrists have come. Some of you got really excited when I started reading those phrases. You know, maybe for some of you, last week, life group was particularly difficult. If you were in life group, did you notice how intrusive some of those questions were? You know, it was like, basically like, list your sins, one to 10, and share them with the group, you know? And some of you might have been saying to yourself like, oh man, I'm so excited that we're getting off that subject. You know, I'm looking forward to talking about the Antichrist and the end times and prophecy, and he just read some verses that seem to be talking about that kind of thing. Some of you might have internally rolled your eyes. <laughs> you know, you might have been saying to yourself, oh man, I don't want to talk about the Antichrist. I don't want to talk about the last days. Please don't talk about a beast or 666 or anything like that. I brought a friend to church today. Please don't do this, <laughs> Nate. You know, I read all the novels. I'm finished thinking about this. And some of you might have had this thought. I know I have this thought sometimes. 
Some of you might have had this thought. Man, last week, you know, talking about worldliness, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, just so practical. You know, this is, this is real boots on the ground stuff. It's, it's where I'm living today. I could talk about those things with my group for, you know, the next three years. It's just so much good food for thought. But here's what I want you to know about this passage in 1 John. I think it's one of the most practical sections in the whole book. Because what John is going to do is describe the days that we are living in today. And if you're not prepared for these days, and I tell you this, worldliness is the least of your concerns. Because the false doctrines and teachings that this world has to offer, they could absolutely steamroll you if you are not prepared. And I'm concerned about this. Because Jesus said that the seed is scattered and some falls upon the wayside where the birds of the air scoop it up. And some falls upon stony ground where it springs up for a little while and then it's burnt and consumed. And some falls upon the ground where thorns and thistles choke the word. And only some falls upon the good ground where it bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for you that every single one of us would be in that fourth category of soil, amen, that we would hear the word, that we would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. I don't want anyone here to be derailed by believing something erroneous about Jesus. I want us to keep on moving in the basics of the gospel, the basics of the spirit, going deeper and deeper into the things of the Lord. All right, so let's think about this first little section that we just read together. First of all, there's some phrases that need some defining. Notice that John says in this first verse that the church had heard that Antichrist is coming. All right, we need to talk about this. Now, it might be surprising to some of you that John is actually the only Bible author who uses the phrase Antichrist. And he only uses it actually in his letters. He doesn't use it in the Gospel of John or even, surprisingly, in the book of Revelation. But the church apparently had heard already that this being, this figure called the Antichrist was one day going to come. Not that he had come in the past, but that one day he was going to come. Now, one place that you can discover teaching about this figure is all the way back in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And there, Daniel received a vision which showed him that a prince who is to come would come onto the scene and establish peace on earth for a period of seven years. And that at the middle of that seven-year period of peace, he would break the peace by going into the temple and doing something called the abomination of desolation. Daniel calls him the desolator. All right, so all the way back in the Old Testament era, God's people were waiting for some kind of prince, some kind of political leader who would come onto the scene and establish peace for a period of time, but break it by going into the temple and desecrating God's holy place. And after Daniel saw that vision, there were certain figures who did things like that. One was named Antiochus Epiphanes. Another was a Roman general who became the emperor named Titus. And both of them, when attacking Israel, went into the temple and defiled it. But both of those figures are past tense at the point that John is writing. Both of them have already come. They were still waiting, John is saying, for this Antichrist figure. I want to show you how Paul speaks about this man in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's read this together. I put it on the screen for you. He said there, this is Paul speaking, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So notice that Paul calls him the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction, and that one day he wants to actually proclaim to be God himself. He wants that kind of allegiance. And the believers in John's day were, in their minds, thinking that this figure would someday come. In fact, Jesus talked about this himself in places like Mark chapter 13. He said there that when that event that Daniel spoke of, the abomination of desolation, the desecration of the temple, he said that cataclysmic events would be conjoined to that desecration. Look what he said in Mark 13, verse 24 and following. He said, at that moment, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And when that comes, what would Jesus do? Well, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. I know I'm bouncing around right now, but I'm making it easy. I'm putting it on the screen for you, so back off. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, Paul then said when Jesus comes, or or he will come when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this figure who is to come, Jesus, is clearly going to defeat him. Now I realize that for many of you, when you think of the Antichrist, because you've read the book of Daniel or you've read the book of Revelation, you have wild images in mind about this figure. You know, those are apocalyptic passages, and they describe this figure like a beast or like a horn that rises up above other horns or as a terror on the earth. But what those images are revealing is God's perspective. People, on the other hand, are going to love this figure. To them, he won't be repulsive, but energizing, a savior, a deliverer, someone who's bringing in a golden age of peace and prosperity or or the promise of it here on earth until his true colors are shown and he demands the kind of allegiance that should only belong to Jesus Christ. And so because of this, he's not just antichrist in the sense that he's opposite Christ. You know, like Jesus came along and he's loving and gentle and he had blue eyes and a perm or whatever. (laughs) And then when the antichrist comes, he's got beady red eyes and like a tail sticking out, you know, and scales or something like that. No, he'll appear to the world to be a great man, a great person that they want to follow. But, But please don't misunderstand me. The church Although we know that this figure is coming, we aren't waiting for the coming of the Antichrist, we're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was younger and there were many in the church who wondered if the last president of the Soviet Union, a man named Mikhail Gorbachev, many people thought that he might be the Antichrist because he led the communist Soviet Union and he had an unfortunate skin blemish on his forehead that some people thought was covering up the mark of the beast or something like that. And the poor guy, you know, they they thought, oh, that's the Antichrist, you know, but that's not our job. We're not here to try to figure out who this world leader is. 
We're here to wait and anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. But, but notice what John says. He says there, but now, even though this figure is coming, verse 18, he says, but right now, many antichrists have come. Not big A antichrists, but small A antichrists have come. And he describes them a little bit. Notice in verse 19, he says, they went out from the church. So at one point, they were part of the church community, but they went out of the church. Then in verse 19, he says, they were not of the church because if they had been, they would have continued with the church. In other words, they were there in appearance, they left at some point, and the, the fact that they left evidenced that they were never really part of the church in the first place. All of these things that John's saying in verse 18 and in verse 19 point to a couple of important Christian doctrines. One of them is the perseverance or the endurance of the saints. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this was not Jesus' way of saying, if you make it to the very end, I will save you, but his way of saying that those who are legitimately saved, they will endure, they will make it to the end. You see, salvation is not a reward for your endurance, but endurance is the hallmark or one of the attributes of legitimate Christianity. And John thought this way. He thought the only reason they left in the first place is because they were never actually part of the church, which brings another important doctrine to mind. The fact that in Scripture, there is such a thing as the visible church and the invisible church. In other words, God wants his church to be as public and visible as we can possibly be, but only the Lord, 2 Timothy 2, 19, only the Lord knows those who are his. So sometimes there are people who are in the church proclaiming things that they actually really in their heart do not believe. And John pointed out that some of these people, their true colors had been shown because they had left the church and began teaching things that were contrary to the gospel. And to, to John, all of this was evidence of something really basic. Verse 18, he said, all of that is evidence that we are living, John would say, in the last hour. Now, some of you, when I read that, you might have got a little tripped up. There's John, 2,000 years ago, writing this letter, and he says, we, are, we know we're living in the last hour. And some of you guys might have thought, like, well, like he whiffed on that one. 2,000 years ago, last hour, here we are. 2,000 years later, we still remain. Look, John was not in error. He was not wrong. What he was saying was, I know the era that I'm living in. As I look at the landscape of redemptive history, I know that when Jesus came with his cross, he introduced the last stage of God's redemption here on earth. And I am living, John would say, in that hour today. You see, the Bible refers to this hour as the last days or the last times. And John felt that he was living in that era. In chapter 2, verse 8, he said, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In verse 17 of the same chapter, he said, the world is passing away along with its desires. You see, John felt this way and we are to feel this way ourselves, that we live in the last era, the last days, the last times, or to borrow from John, the last Hour, to feel that time is short, that God's redemptive plan, he's done everything that he needs to do before the return, before the coming of Christ. And what John was expecting about this last hour is that there would be people who departed from 
the faith. You see, the thing is, if you don't realize that you're in this hour, then you'll be blindsided by the seven years of famine. You'll be blindsided when people who name the name of Christ lose their minds, it seems, and lose their faith. It will shake you to the core. It should always grieve you, but it might distract you too much. And recently I caught up with a friend of mine. We had lost touch for many years, and we finally got a chance to have a little phone chat together. And we've both been serving the Lord for at least a couple decades, and so we finally got a chance to talk and catch up. And, and, you know, we kind of had our niceties at first, and then I just kind of, before we really got into it, I just asked him the question. I said, hey, man, you know, are you still orthodox? Do you still believe the cardinal tenets of the faith? Are you still preaching the same thing that you were preaching 20 years ago? You know, are, you, are we still on the same page together? Are you, are you still down? You know, and he's like, yeah, man, I'm still down. And then I ex- expressed the same to him. And then once we got that out of the way, our fellowship was able to continue. When you know what hour you're living in, you might have a conversation like that. You might expect that that's an important thing to to wrestle with. But notice verse 20. John tells us that we don't have to give in to the spirit of the age or these antichrists because he says, but you have been anointed with the Holy One and you have all knowledge. And we're gonna look more fully at this when we get to the end of the teaching. But basically what John is saying here is, We have, if we're believers, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is like a beacon of light showing us error and protecting us from error. So what John is saying is, look, no matter the era you're in, if you're a Christian, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can keep on moving forward even when others lose their minds and depart from the faith. There's a story in the life of Joshua that I love. It comes at the end of the book of Joshua, and I've, I've thought of this story so many times in my Christian life and walk, because I've served with a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people do crazy things that I never thought that they would do. And I, there's a story at the end of the book of Joshua where Joshua is about to die. He's led the people of Israel for 40 years into the promised land. They've, they've gotten the land. They've divvied it all up. And And Joshua just looks at him and he gives him this speech. He just says, look, you know, I I hope that you all walk with the Lord after I'm dead. You might not. (laughs) He said, you know, there's false gods out there and I pray that you don't attach yourself to them. But then he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, unfortunately, I've heard some Christians quote that verse in a very braggadocious kind of way. You know, like, I, I I don't know about all these other losers out there. But as for me and my house, like I know what's up, we're gonna serve the Lord. And I'd encourage you not to say it like that. But I'd encourage you to do is with a humble heart that says, you know, but by the grace of God, there go I. There's all these temptations out there, there's all these distractions out there, but as for me and my house, we're gonna stay true to the Lord. We're gonna, we're gonna serve the Lord. I think that's a great spirit and attitude to have. Okay, so that's the first thing. Consider the season that you're in. But number two, we're also to confess the Son. Let's read this in verse 21 to 25. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 
Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this, verse 25, is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now I love this from John because he's very clear with the people he's writing to that they knew the truth. Notice that in verse 21. They knew the truth. There was some kind of lie that was floating around, and they had not believed it. The churches had not yet believed it. So the question is, what was the lie that was floating around? Well, notice it in verse 22. He writes it out there for us. He says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That was the lie that these people that had went out from the church were preaching. Jesus is not the Christ. Now, in the Old Testament era, the people of Israel were waiting for the Christ. They would have called him the Messiah. They were waiting for the messianic figure to save them, to deliver them. Jesus came along. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But then decades later, John gets to writing this epistle, and the title, the Christ, means more than just the Jewish Messiah. It had come to be known that divinity is upon that figure. And so there were some who were denying that Jesus was not just the Messiah, but also that Jesus was not divine, that he was not God the Son. That's why John adds verse 22, the end of it, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. This is a big deal to John. This is why he's written the epistles that he wrote. It's why he wrote the Gospel of John in the first place. Look at what he wrote at the end of the Gospel of John. John 20, verse 31. He said, these events are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John was just very concerned that people understand that Jesus is the Son of God, which of course for him meant and them meant that he is God the Son. There were probably lots of false teachers around in John's day who were going around saying Jesus was great and what he had was the Christness which came upon him to do his miraculous works here on earth. But once he died, the Christness departed from him and we can receive that Christness as well. But in doing so, they were denying that Jesus was divinity. They were just saying he was a mere man, not the eternal son of God with two full or complete perfect natures, one human and one divine. And that denial to John made them completely unchristian. And when John talks like this, it's, it's like an alien kind of thought because he just comes in with this black and white, this is the way it is way of thinking. You know, because we live in an era, of course, where people want to claim that we all worship the same God, just by different names, or that all roads lead to the same God, no matter how violently the different roads or religions of the world contradict each other or postulate wildly varying versions of deity. But John just comes along and says, here's the test. Does a person believe that Jesus is God the Son? If they don't, it's not a Christian belief system. They don't have the Father. That's why John said in verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And then conversely, on the flip side, he wrote, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, we've already seen the first two tests of Christianity from John. It's 
Do I obey God's commandments? And secondly, do I love God's people? But finally here, John says, do I believe or do we believe in God's son? And this is just a simple test that can be applied to many strange cults and belief systems today who who claim Jesus but deny his identity. All we have to do is ask, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, meaning that he is God the son? And if the answer is no, it doesn't matter how nice the person is who's preaching that message to you, they are in error. They have got the wrong belief system. I'll just say it like this and put it on the screen there for you. What John is saying is, no son, no father, but if you know the son, you know the father. And John's whole thing is, look, this is the gospel message. Just keep rolling with that confession. That's why he says in verse 24 and 25, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. He's just saying, continue to let that message of Jesus Christ his gospel, that he's the son of God who died on the cross for the sins of the world, continue to let it penetrate your heart. The whole Bible is about it. Let him be the hero of the story in your life as you get into scripture. He's, it's a story you should fall in love with once, but also a million times. John Stott is a great Christian theologian. He said it like this. He said, Christian theology is anchored not only to certain historical events, culminating in the saving career of Jesus, but to the authoritative apostolic witness to and interpretation of these events. The Christian can never weigh anchor and launch out into the deep of speculative thought, nor can he forsake the primitive teaching of the apostles for subsequent human traditions. The apostolic testimony is directed essentially to the Son. That is why it will keep them true to him if they remain true to it. But the thing is, I don't know if you've noticed this, human beings like new things. We like new things. Like new restaurants, new movies, new books. We like new things, new gadgets. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who's been in the produce industry for a couple decades, uh, you know, selling produce, distributing it all over the United States. And I asked him, I said, has there ever been like a, a fruit or a vegetable that just totally caught you by surprise, where one day nobody cared about it, and then in a quick period of time, like, it's new. Everybody loves it. And he's, he, real quickly, he's like, yeah, kale, you know? <laughs> he just said, like, it used to be a garnish or a weed. We'd throw it away, and now we're just having to grow it like crazy because people love kale. We love new things so much, we will even love kale. That's what I'm trying to say. But when it comes to truth claims, new is not better, amen? When it comes to truth claims, new is not better. Paul had to address this idea in the churches in the region of Galatia. They'd heard the gospel, but many of them were drifting from it. So he said this to them, and I'm gonna read this to you. I'll, I'll put it on the screen. I just want you to think of the sobriety of these words. He said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Those are strong words from Paul. He knew that the stakes were high, so he used that kind of vocabulary. All right, let's look at the third thing. We must also not just confess the Son and consider the season we're in, but number three, we should continue in the Spirit's teaching. Continue in the Spirit's teaching. Let's close with our last two verses, verse 26 and 27. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, verse 27, that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. All right, so in reading that, John used a few phrases which have come under a little bit of abuse in Christian circles, okay? Back in verse 20, we kind of touched on it lightly. He said, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Here, he picks up on that idea. He says in verse 27 that the anointing we've received from Jesus abides in us, okay? So somehow God has anointed or given an anointing to the people in his church, all right? So what is this anointing? Well, let's, let's dispense with one idea. John is not referring to a secret club, okay? He's not referring to an anointing that only a select few Christians receive. So if you come to a special meeting, you could get the anointing. Some people think of it like this, like, like it's like the flu or the cold. Like you go, you catch it, and then you get the anointing somehow. That's not what John is talking about, like a virus or a germ. No, he's not saying that. But this is likely what the false teachers were saying, that they had a special anointing that they could dispense and give to others. But John's not alluding to that. All he's talking about is the basic fact that at regeneration, when you become a Christian, every believer becomes the home of the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul said in Ephesians 1.13 and 2 Corinthians 1.22. He said, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then again, God put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's what John's alluding to. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit seals you. He comes to live inside of you. That's the anointing that John is talking about. And he's, he's saying that this anointing, the Holy Spirit, he's our teacher. So much so that he even says in verse 27, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So goodbye, amen, let's close right now. No, obviously, John is not trying to say that there's no need for teachers in the body of Christ. I don't know if you've noticed, but he's teaching pretty hard with this letter, and he doesn't end with this line. He keeps on teaching. He would have stood with Paul, who said in Ephesians 4 that God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. No, he's not trying to displace the role of teachers, but what he's saying is, Look, all you really need is not new teachers that have new teachings and new doctrines. What you need are teachers who will communicate what the Spirit is saying in his word. You could go to the word yourself, the Spirit could teach it to you, and through the teaching of other Spirit-filled teachers, you could understand the word 
of God. Please don't abuse a passage like this to say, I am in need of nobody. I remember talking to a man in our lobby years ago who, after one of our Sunday services, he came to me, had his wife and children with him, and he told me that he had come a very far distance to be with our church on this particular Sunday because starting with his home, he had kind of worked out from his home and he had visited 30 or 40 different churches over the previous year trying to find a church that was good enough for him and his family. And my radar went up and I just realized real quickly, like, well, I know there's plenty of good churches between me and him. And so I have a good feeling we're not gonna fit the bill either. So I let him ask me a few questions and I asked him a few questions and then I assured him that we also would not be able to accommodate all the things that he needed. And I just prayed for him and sent him on his way. I felt so bad for his wife and so bad for his children because clearly he was operating like a man who thought that what John is saying is, I've got the spirit, I know the truth, no one else can communicate to me. No, that's not at all what John is saying. But now that we've addressed what John isn't saying, we should celebrate what he is communicating. He's saying that the spirit of God He makes the word alive to us as individual Christians. He's the one who helps us to not run wild into things that contradict Scripture, but he makes Scripture alive for us. He teaches us the truth of his word, and he he endues the teaching of God's word with power. What John is saying is, look, if the Spirit is there in your life, then just as he's taught you, then abide in him. Just keep on going in this truth. Now, we're going to talk more about what it means to abide in this truth or abide in Jesus next week, because that's where we'll pick it up next week. But I just want you to think of the story of ancient Israel. Remember the people of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. There came a time where they were hungry, and they went to Moses with their hunger, and Moses went to God with it, and he prayed to God. And God decided to begin distributing for almost 40 years this thing called manna to the people of Israel. Six days a week, it was this like frost kind of thing on the ground that they'd go out in the morning and they could collect it, and it would satisfy them for that day and that day alone. And God gave them very explicit directions. He said, you know, when you go out to collect it, don't collect two days worth, because if you, co- if you try to store it up for the next day, it will breed worms and stink. God gave, you know, I mean, that should be like a total deterrent for everybody. Like, why would I want that to happen? But some people didn't trust the Lord, and they went out, and they picked up a couple of days worth thinking, we're going to put this in the Ziploc and put it in the fridge or whatever, and they thought they'd store it up, and guess what happened? It bred worms, and it stank, and they never did that again. You know, it just didn't work out. And I've always liked that image because it's spoken to me of the necessity to daily allow the word of God access to my life. Now, Jesus said that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I've taken that to mean that I can't live off yesterday's word. I can't live off Sunday's sermon. I've got to live off the word that God is going to speak to my heart every single day of my life. And what this passage is showing us is that with the Spirit of God living inside of us, we have got a shot as we're reading the Bible for ourselves. That we can pray to the Lord and say, God, would you show yourself to me? Would you speak to me from your word? Sometimes people ask me how I read the Bible, what my personal time is with the Lord. You know, obviously I study a lot just for sermon prep and things like that, but 
what's my personal time getting into the word about? And I've written about it, talked about it at length, but it's a pretty basic system in my life. The first thing I do after my cup of coffee is I open up to where my bookmark is in either the Psalms or the Proverbs, and I read a chapter. I'm just looking for my heart to get re-engaged with the things of God. Maybe a line, a sentence, a phrase about the Lord that I maybe write down in my notebook. The next thing that I do is I open up to my New Testament bookmark. It starts in Matthew chapter one and it goes all the way to the end of the book of Revelation and I just read one chapter or even a half a chapter from that New Testament portion of scripture wherever I left off. And I'm just looking for phrases, prayers, things that I'm learning that I'm being reminded of about the Lord or about myself. And then I go to, wait for it, my Old Testament bookmark. And I start in Genesis chapter one and I just move forward. Sometimes it's one chapter, sometimes it's four chapters, but I'm moving forward at a a slightly more accelerated pace in the New Testament because it's so much longer. And I'm trying to end both the Old and New Testament at about the same time. And if it takes a year, it takes a year. If it takes two years, it takes two years. If it takes half a year, it takes half a year, but I'm just trying to move through God's word so that the Holy Spirit has a chance to speak into my life personally. All right, now I want to end this by showing you or reminding you what John said in verse 26. Look at that phrase again. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. This is the time that we're living in, you guys, where there are those that are actively attempting to deceive the church. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 and 7. He said, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty People will always be learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. There will be this sense where people say, oh, I don't know about that. I'm not really certain. I'm not really sure. You know who's really sure? John. That's how he writes. That's how he speaks. He's communicating. You can be certain. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4 says it this way, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And if Paul said that that time is coming, I think that that time is totally here. All right, so remember Joseph, preparing Pharaoh for the days of famine. I I hope that John has helped prepare you for the difficult era that we are living in today, the hour that we are in. All right, I'm gonna wrap up by giving you some applications. I've seen some of you guys trying to write these down. Just stop, don't try. It's just gonna be too hard. Just go to nateholdridge.com. I got them all written out there for you. Or when I'm all finished saying them, just take a picture of the screen. It's okay, you could do that. I won't be weirded out by it. But here they are. Number one, and one of these might stand out to you. Number one, stop thinking of the doctrine of Christ's coming as impractical. It's so practical. To be dreaming of, thinking about the coming of Christ. Some people have taught and thought that to believe or to, to hold to the, to the possibility of Jesus' coming at any moment, that it makes Christians impractical. The believers I know who've internalized this doctrine really well, it's made them the most practical Christians I've ever known. Number two, pray for Jesus' return. The end of the book of Revelation includes a prayer where God's people pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. When you pray that way, it just tunes your heart to heaven. It sets your heart in the right place. Number three, read the book of Revelation. I realize that it's a scary book for many of you, and you can listen to my teaching online about the book of Revelation if you'd like, 
One of the things that's scary about it is that we all know that there are various views about how the book of Revelation should be interpreted, and there are many good Christians who hold these different views. But here's what I'm trying to say. For 2,000 years now, the book of Revelation has encouraged Christians of various views about the book of Revelation because in it, we're all encouraged no matter what's happening or what we think is happening there. The bottom line is Jesus wins. All right, so it's just always been a real encouraging book to Christians who are persecuted or going through trials. So read the book of Revelation. There's a special blessing in that book. Number four, if you're ever bored when thinking of the gospel, rebuke the thought. Okay, that is the seed of the enemy trying to get you to open up to a false teaching. To say, oh, the, the gospel, it's just not anything spectacular. The Bible teaches in Colossians that in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you got enough to keep yourself full in Jesus for a lifetime. Number five, ask Christians you respect for book recommendations. See, a lot of times what a believer will do is they're like, man, I really want to grow. I'm going to go to the Amazon spirituality page and look at the top 10 things. Don't do that, okay? Go to Christians that you admire that seem to know the word, seem to be solid, seem to be mature, and ask for book reading recommendations. They'll point you in the right direction. Number six, number six, ask the Father for more guidance from the Spirit. You know, when you open up the Bible, let that be the first prayer that comes out of your heart to the Lord. God, I need your help right now. I need the help of your Holy Spirit. You've, you've anointed me with your spirit, so would you help me to understand your word? It doesn't mean it's not gonna take any work or any thought, it will, but trust him and ask him to give you that help. Number seven, find a doable Bible reading plan. Okay, I, I told you what I do. Some of you might've heard that and go, that doesn't sound doable. All right, some of you might've thought that sounds too easy. I don't know. But find one that suits you and just be in a regular pattern. Don't get all banged up if you fail for a couple of weeks or something like that. Just get back in it and pick up where you left off and just keep, keep moving through the word of God. And then number eight, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. And when you think about who Jesus is, what he's done, it just creates a celebration, a little party in your heart which keeps you from turning to so many of the false things that are out there. He truly is the hero of the story and of our lives. So let's remember Jesus in the midst of all of this. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.